Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for March 15, 2015. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon this morning is entitled, Rhythm and Pattern, The Power Behind the Power. writer named Mark, we have been introduced to Jesus. At this point, here's what we've done. We've been introduced to Jesus. We've heard about his message and his mission. We've learned about his family and his parables and his power. And our text last week brought us to a time of transition in his life. Strange text, many of you said last week. What do we make of this gruesome beheading of John the baptizer? which is a particular visceral story for us today, given the spate of publicized murders by deranged fanatics belonging to that so-called caliphate called ISIS. Now, don't you know that the death of John, who the Bible says was Jesus' own cousin and was certainly his mentor, was even more troubling to Jesus because it was a real event close to Jesus in place and time. It wasn't just a record of an ancient history or a happening in some foreign world. As Amy and I have outlined Mark's narrative for this preaching series, we have come now to a series of episodes that we put under this heading, Transition. Transition, what do we learn about Jesus in this transition as we head into the heart of Mark's story? Now today's stories, the three that I've just read, are all worthy of their own telling and a month worth of sermons each. But because we do not have that kind of time to devote to the story, I hope you'll let me point out just a few interesting features before turning to the main point for today. First, despite Jesus' efforts to keep his own identity under wraps, the name Jesus had apparently spread through the land and everywhere he went, a crowd followed him. There is no quiet rest for Jesus and his disciples without intentionally seeking rest. The Sea of Galilee is a very large lake, but as you go around that sea, you will notice that there's no place you can't see, literally see from one side to the other. So when Jesus and his disciples set out in a boat, it might well have been obvious to the people where he was going from Capernaum down to Magdala, or from Tiberias up to Gennesaret, such journeys would easily have been attainable by foot on shore. So one can imagine that when he and his disciples pushed off from the shore, trying to get away from the crowds, they followed. Today's first episode begins when Jesus steps off the boat and the crowds, having beaten him to his destination, are standing there waiting on him. Rather than being exasperated, Jesus, the rock star, looks out across the masses and the story says his stomach churned. That's literally what it says, not in disgust, but with the hurting hunger for their helplessness. The Greek word splagnitsomai, compassion, is etymologically connected to the word for bowels. When we feel compassion, we feel compassion. His emotion was not a condemning self-righteous pity. It was empathic care. 
He bore the pain of their burdens in his insides. He hurt for them. In the second place, the the phrase sheep without a shepherd has been greatly debated by scholars. It alludes to Moses and to the prophecy of Ezekiel. Was Mark trying to make a deliberate comparison? Or did it connote military imagery? Was Mark making a veiled reference to Jesus as a Messiah in the traditionally understood Jewish sense, one who would gather his sheep to lead a revolt against the oppressing Romans? Mark's description of their seating arrangement, which is kind of odd, isn't it? He sat them by 100s and sat them by 50s. Maybe this is a reference to military procedure. Third, Jesus has just sent his disciples out on their own commission. We read about that last week or the week before. Charging them to go in two by two and take no bread and no money with you Yet in this episode, when they offer concern for these masses with no food, he says, how many loaves do you have? Well, this isn't John's gospel where the young lad offers to donate his lunchbox for the cause. One commentary sees the great irony here. Apparently, the disciples have both food and money just not enough loaves to feed them all, and not enough money to buy for them all. Learning to trust is difficult, isn't it? The Lord's Prayer, which we just sang together, says, give us today our daily bread. Just enough of what we need for today. Don't take any more with you, he told his disciples. But just what we need for today still isn't enough, is it? Yeah, the Lord might provide, but if I can save enough for the future, well, I won't have to trouble God with that. You know what I mean? How much do we trust? Next point, Chad Myers, whose commentary Amy and I have enjoyed so much, sees no supernatural miracle in this story. Now listen carefully. He reads at face value. He says, Jesus looked up into the heavens and he blessed and broke the loaves and he gave them what he had broken to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them. Meyer says this isn't about some supernatural multiplication of matter. Jesus is just refusing to enjoin his disciples to participate in the, in the normative market economy. We don't need to spend money, Jesus says. We've already got enough. You know that wonderful old story about stone soup? The guy comes into town and he says, I need something to eat. And the people said, oh, we're starving. We don't have anything to eat for ourselves. We can't share with you. And so the guy goes over and he grabs a stone and he takes a pot and puts water in and he starts boiling and he drops the stone in and he says, this is going to be good soup. And somebody shows up and says, yeah, but it'd be better with a carrot. I got, I got one carrot. And he drops in the carrot. Somebody else shows up with an onion. Well, I found one onion. It'd be better with an onion in it. And lo and behold, before it's all said and done, the whole community has come out and they've dropped in what they didn't have. And all of a sudden they have a feast together. 
Ted Myers says that's what happened here. Jesus blessed and broke the loaves and passed them out. And all of a sudden, people thought, you know, I can share what I've got. What a miracle there that would be. The liberating way of Jesus satisfies real human need, even when it comes at the expense of the economic system. How often do we hear these days something about the economy? How's the economy doing? It's so important to us, isn't it? The economy, how's the economy doing? Well, Jesus wasn't concerned about the economy. Jesus cared about people. Other commentators have noted that the the economic critique in the healing of that demon-possessed legion from Gadara, that story we read a couple of weeks ago where Jesus sends out the legion into the swine, and the swine, which were the livelihood, the economy of the people, go running off into the sea, and they are furious. Jesus' critique of the economy What would it have meant to the economy of Galilee for 5,000 men and their families to go searching for dinner and probably lodging too? But Jesus wasn't worried about the economy. He was concerned about the people, and he took care of their needs first. Now, the story of Jesus walking on the water is one of my favorites, as I've just told the children. It's the closest thing we get in the Bible to any barefoot water skiing in the ancient world. I may have told you that three years ago when I was in Israel, I tried to hire a boat and a driver on the dock in Tiberias to take me barefooting on the lake. I took a pastor friend of mine who had a good camera with me. The picture he was going to take was going to be my only souvenir from the Holy Land for that trip. I imagined it captioned on a poster-sized reprint that said, I walk today where Jesus walked. (laughs) Well, the Israeli driver and his teenage son had handed me the skis, and they had given me my life jacket, and I had started trying to communicate with them as best I could. You know, I was pointing to the speedometer. How fast can you go? And then I looked at the skis, and I was trying to show what I'm going to do. My foot, one foot on the water. Mayim was about the only Hebrew word I could uh, learn to remember at that time. One foot on the water, and then the other foot on the water. Well, suddenly the lights went on for the old man, the driver, and I think he saw dollar signs erupting in neon. He was hearing the words from his attorney and remembering the fine print of his own liability insurance policy. And as soon as he understood that I wanted to go 40 miles an hour and yank both feet out of my skis onto the water, his face turned down and he angrily said, no, 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 no. And he pointed me back to the dock and I walked up there to the mother in the family who was not happy at all to return the $60 I had just given her for my trip to ski on the Sea of Galilee. Well, Jesus did not have to pay any money And he was not going 40 miles an hour, but his presence that night was enough to scare the bejesus out of his disciples. Mark's brief commentary has it just right. When they saw him, they were afraid because they did not understand about the loaves. You understand about the loaves? There is always 
enough. When we have faith, there is always enough and some left over. Twelve baskets full. And the walking on the water, where there is faith, almost anything, even that which seems impossible, can be accomplished. Who is this Jesus? Now the final episode should make us ask about the power of faith. Jesus comes and they just touch him. He doesn't even know it. And they are healed. Like the old woman with the hemorrhage though, who was healed just by touching the hem of his garment. We have to ask about the power. So what was the power that healed them? Was it something supernatural, something magical in the aura of Jesus? In the other story of the woman with the hemorrhage, we're told that Jesus knew something went out of him. But in this story, it just says they touched him and they were healed. So was it something in Jesus or was it the power of their own belief? Jesus consistently says, it is your faith that has healed you. Or maybe the faith of someone who brought you for healing. Jesus never says, it's my power that has healed you. Your faith has made you well. Well, Mark makes it clear that Jesus had whatever the power was. Jesus, by his presence, called it forth. Everywhere he went. The gospel is filled with intrigue and mystery and the joy that followed Jesus everywhere. But none of these interesting insights is the point for today. What we need to ask for today is about the power, but the power behind the power. The power was rhythm and pattern. The power behind Jesus' power was the rhythm of his life and the pattern of his commitments and his spirituality. In a word, the power is prayer. And before the religious skeptics roll their eyes, they should hear this truth as spoken by Frederick Buechner, who understands prayer better than most. Buechner says, we all pray whether we think of it as praying or not. The odd silence we fall into when something very beautiful is happening or something very good or very bad. The ah that sometimes floats up out of us as out of a 4th of July crowd when the skyrockets burst over the water. The stammer of pain at someone else's pain that we feel. The stammer of joy at someone else's joy. Whatever words or sounds we use for sighing with all over our lives. These are all prayers in their own way. These are all spoken not just to ourselves, but to something even more familiar than ourselves and even more strange than the world. Buechner is saying about the same thing that Anne Lamott knew about those three basic human emotions that she caricatured as help, thanks, wow. Three basic prayers. These three raw emotions are prayer in the very deepest sense. 
The German mystic Meister Eckhart said in the 13th century, if the only prayer you ever say in your entire life is thank you, it will be enough. The psalmist says deep calls to deep. There are those moments, they are inherent to the human experience when something in us reaches out beyond us to understand or to be understood, to share or to be heard, to know or to be known. Those moments are the inspiration of great poetry, the desire to name the depth of human experience, not in words, but in the rhythm of poetry and in the space between the words. These moments are the flash of insight for art and music, the need to speak to something deeper in us than just intellectual understanding. These moments make human life spiritual. There's just no other word for it. There is more than what you can touch and taste and smell in this world. There is the totality of your human experience. There is what you feel in your soul. Everyone prays. We just don't all call it the same thing. Prayer is the heart of the religious experience, and that same impulse, though very differently understood, is inescapable, I believe, even in the greatest skeptic, the most convinced materialist. I continue to stand by what Amy and I consistently tell our children about the discipline of prayer. Number one, prayer is not magic. And number two, God is not Santa Claus. Prayer is communion with the divine and should involve listening more than talking, naming more than asking, accepting more than demanding. Thomas More has said prayer is an alternative to working hard to get what you want. In other words, one eventually discovers that what you want is almost always what you do not need. And prayer teaches us what we need. If you do not know how to pray, let me encourage you again to learn how to pray in nouns. Forget the verbiage, the verbs, the asking, any eloquence, and just name the people or the events or the experiences that are on your heart and hold them in the light of the stillness of God's presence. Mary Ann. ISIS, Park Road Baptist Church. Don't you think God understood those prayers? And let me encourage you to pray with your hands and your feet. A, A Benedictine named Dom Chapman taught me a long time ago to learn to pray as you can, not as you can't. If you can't pray on your knees, get on your feet. Or pray in the wood shop as you think about someone, or pray in the needler's closet as you're making a prayer shawl for someone. Pray with your hands and with your feet. Learn to be attentive to your actions that even where you go and what you do become prayers to God. 
And as Augustine famously said, learn to pray as if everything depends on you. Believe that. Excuse me. Pray as if everything depends on God. Believe that. Trust that. Give yourself to the humility of dependence on God. And then work as if everything depends on you. One time-worn philosophy suggests that a life of balance knows the importance of four disciplines. Work, play, love, pray. Work, play, love, pray. Our culture actually needs a little help with all of these, I think. Work, play, and love. We've got issues with all of those things. And we are perhaps more and more diminishing the value of prayer, our understanding of it for a balanced, healthy life. The power behind Jesus' power was not some magical line he had to a supernatural force. It was the discipline of a life of balance, a life which he knew the importance of, a life which knew rhythm of work and worship, leisure and liturgy, a life which was ordered after a divine pattern, work, play, love, pray. No less than six times in Mark's short gospel, Jesus commends prayer as the power behind the life of meaning. He takes his, he, he takes his disciples away to a deserted place by themselves. And often he takes that time for himself. Now Jesus' actual praying life is mostly unknown to us. He just goes to a quiet place alone. And that may be all we need to know. The one place in Mark's gospel where Jesus does give instruction for prayer, well, this is informative. He says, so I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't say, believe that you will receive something. True prayer doesn't put us in the state of asking and then sitting by anxiously wondering if God is going to answer, if God is going to do something. We are not helpless, and prayer should not be some escapist practice that removes us from the realities of this life while we wait on supernatural help from the next. Prayer is confidence and courage to claim the strength God has already provided for us in whatever opportunity is before us. And prayer calls us to take responsibility. If you have something against someone, it is your responsibility. Go to them. You forgive them. He doesn't say when they've asked. He says you go to them and forgive them. Now whether you come to that kind of clarity in a moment of silence called confession on a Sunday morning in worship or by any other means of listening, it will do you a world of good. You see, there is only one person in the whole world that you can change, and prayer will help us to change us. Is there rhythm in your life? 
Or are you just frantically trying to get from one appointment on your calendar to the next? Is there rhythm in your life? Work, play, love, pray. Within us, our hearts beat out a rhythm that keep us alive. And we need that healthy beat to show up outside our lives as well in all that we do, work, play, love, pray, in a pattern that will give us the life Jesus promised. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening today. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Grace and peace to you.